I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Wines from the Santa Barbara area have been interesting to follow over the last few decades. In the 1800s, Mission Grapes flourished here, but they all but disappeared after Prohibition. Local industry moved in other directions, until a resurgence of grape interest blossomed in the 1970s. Press coverage of Sanford and Benedict's Pinot Noir from the mid-70s attracted several wine pioneers to the region. The cornerstones of the last few decades have been Rhone and Burgundy varieties, Pinot, Chardonnay, Grenache, and Syrah. And in the 90s, big, bold, ripe versions drew some early attention to the region. But now the pendulum swings in the other direction, quite literally, towards the cooler, windy sites near the ocean. And more tense and delicate wines from Pinot and Rhone grapes are currently in the spotlight. In part due to local rules that make building an estate winery difficult and expensive, and also in part due to Manfred Crankle's pioneering headway and success with the Sinequanon Urban Winery, the Santa Barbara wine scene has a unique modus operandi. Many producers there position their wineries in warehouse districts. These are city-like environs, and they're close to the 101. Short drives away, they maintain isolated vineyard sites in separate locations across the region. Some have their own sites, some buy fruit from contracted growers, and some use a combination of both. This norm for Santa Barbara winemaking is far from the bucolic images conjured when we usually think of sprawling California wineries with a big estate in the middle of the vineyards. And yet, it works for this community. The wineries benefit from their proximity to each other. They share physical things like equipment. And the exchange of knowledge and communication moves faster in this setting, too. The wineries also benefit from their access to the infrastructure of a city, such as running water, electricity, Wi-Fi, and anything else they could need to operate. Though a far cry from the estate winery cookie-cutter model, many winemakers see their situation as an advantage. They feel positioned right in the center of their collection of vineyards, rather than be limited by the microgeology of the acres around an estate, or drive an hour to an isolated satellite vineyard, their central location puts them in close proximity to all the various vineyards that radiate outward from civilization. 
The recent success of a place like this, of a place with a winemaking infrastructure that operates differently than so many other places in the U.S., it's revolutionary. Because it shows current and future wine regions that there are more ways to set up shop than we may realize. Beyond the tangibles of its own unique wine products, Santa Barbara and the surrounding wine regions are a blueprint for a different approach to winemaking. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand raj par back on the show hello sir how are you great thank you for having me back nice to see you pleasure so last time we talked a lot about your days as a sommelier and getting yelled at by customers and other, <laughs> other sommeliers. No, I mean, getting mentored by other uh, sommeliers and, and learning to taste, basically. And then, but you've also had almost kind of a whole second career where you've done more winery projects, either as a partner or invested in the winemaking itself. And what have been some of those? So it started, I, I guess I'll take it back to 2003. I was... Uh, I was at the Master in Food and Wine in Carmel, and I think we were drinking an old bottle of Gryo, and uh, my buddy Seth Cunin from Cunin Wines, he, you know, he was just hanging out, and I said, I said, Seth, you know, how come in California no one makes whole cluster Syrah like this? He's like, it's impossible. You can't do whole cluster Syrah and still get good ripeness, and it's not possible. I'm like, interesting, okay. So, so I, you know, I kind of... Stuck in my head, and I'm like, okay, so I got to find a Syrah vineyard and just just to experiment, just a curious mind, nothing, nothing more than that. So, after doing some research, I, I found, uh, you know, I, I met Steve Beckman from Beckman Vineyards, and and you know, talked to him about Syrah and said, can I, you know, buy a couple tons and make it right there with you and kind of see what happens. And Chad Melville helped me with the the original project, and so that was in '04. We were opening Michael Mina. I couldn't make it down for harvest. You know, uh, but from the beginning, Santa Barbara area. It was always, yeah. It was all those cats are Santa Barbara. It was always. I don't know why, because maybe Clendenin, because he was, he was there at the same time. I talked to Jim. I said, you know, can I like, can you give me some uh, Chardonnay from San Benedict? And at the time, the idea was just wow, to kind shooting of, high from the from the start, huh? Oh yeah, no, it, it worked. You, you know, he he gave me, uh, you know, I bought a few barrels and gave it to him, and he put the juice in there. And it was made there, so 
or four or five. I you know I work with Wells, two villages, Wells Pino, or yeah, from Wells from Copan. But he was big Anderson Valley guy uh, too. Yeah, right? so it, it, we made an 04 and 05. You know, basically I just picked the barrels. I said I want whole cluster. So I wasn't involved in the wine making. I wasn't. I just wanted the style. So at the time from 04 that I met Sashi in 2004, taught, started working with him in 06, and all these things were just. I was just basically working with other winemakers, trying to kind of have my idea with them, but. I realized that it doesn't work that way. You, you know, you can't tell, you, like, I'm not sure, you couldn't tell someone, say, you know what, I want this kind of wine, and, you know, you can't. So I was like, okay, so I got it myself. So so you don't go to Armani and say you want, like, bright pink uh, suit or something. Yeah, so yeah. it was, and it, these were all just, just to be curious. It wasn't something which was, you know, I never thought I'm going to leave working in restaurants, and my goal was still opening a restaurant. It wasn't like. You wanted wines you could pour at the restaurants. Uh, it was just two barrels and four barrels and, you know, it was on the par selection. It was just, just curious, you know. And then I got more kind of into it in 2008 when uh, Evening Land was planting those vineyards in Santa Rita Hills and I was involved in, right in the beginning. And, you know, with Sashi and, yeah, Sashi Mormon, my partner, Domaine de la Cote uh, and Sandy in Seven Springs. So, you know, it just kind of, it, it just kind of morphed into like, okay, now we found this vineyard. This is a cool vineyard. And, and in 2009, we had a, we bought two tons from from the Evening Land, the first vintage from the San Rita property, and uh, we also made the Chardonnay for the first time. We finally bought grapes, not from Jim, but from the from the from the vineyard from from Sanford and Benedict, uh, and we pressed it ourselves. And 2009, we made that, and then 2010 came around, and I'm like, okay, so this worked fairly well for the first vintage we made ourselves, you know hands-on and uh and i'm like okay so now we can maybe start you know maybe start something and maybe do a commercial project something a little bit more and i knew charles banks uh for many years uh how did you meet charles banks I, you know at, at events at tastings he was always at the restaurant or at some uh, dinner you know for, for example at, the, at carmel for the food and wine event and he you know he was around i knew that he loved wine and i didn't know that he was looking to start a business but so I, you know, I called him and I said, you know, can we meet for dinner? And I want to tell you, you know, our project. And I, I knew I wanted to work with Charles because he just he loves wine. He's just like totally in love with wine, and and I wanted to work with someone who would who would give me an opportunity to do what I want to do. So I went to him, and we had me and Sashi had dinner with him in Santa Barbara, and I talked about Sandy, and you know, so I wanted to, I want to have a, a winery, a, a label which is focusing on Chardonnay. And uh, on bright and fresh and kind of crisp, clean. Again, I have no idea what's going what's gonna to become. So we, he said, "Okay, let's do it." That's it. He just said that. Boom. The next day, we met the other partners, and within a week, we were off. We were like, so then we ended up buying those barrels back from Evening Land, starting a new company, and really found all the vineyards. We had no name, so then you know. In the middle of harvest, we thought of the name Sandy. Sandy means collaboration. Because I thought it meant like the beach, like Sandy. Yeah, <laughs> Sandy Beach, yeah. No, it's, no it's, but it's not spelled yeah. like that. It's spelled with an H. And, exactly. So Sandy is a Sanskrit word in old Sanskrit. And uh, it means collaboration since we're buying all the grapes, working with different growers and coopers. And, you know, it was just a real collaboration. And really, a, you know, within a, within a month, uh, we found all these different vineyards. And that's how it started. And we focus on on Chardonnay and a little bit of Pinot Noir on the southern part of San Rita Hills. I was very focused on 
the exact area I want to be in. All the vineyards are pretty much next to each other. The soil type is all silica-based, very different than the northern part of Santa Vita, where there's more sand, and it's different, you know. What led you to that conclusion? Of course, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot, limestone is, everyone wants to go for limestone, and what I discovered, I couldn't find the right area where I could make a wine with natural acidity, whole cluster Pinot, and just vibrancy. I, you know, the, the style of wine, me and Sashi, we love, you know, no manipulation, just fresh, vibrant style wines and San Rita Hills kind of, you know, fit in. Because before that, you know, you know, I made a Chardonnay at Glendennon from Sonoma, from Charles Hines. I was made small, two small cuvées in Oregon from Seven Springs, working with Wells in 0405 from uh, Kaiser in Anderson Valley. Then uh, Chardonnay from Brusso Vineyard in 05, working at Calera in 97. So, you know, I, I went around the whole state and t- but what I found was that in San Rita Hills, it was, you know, we could make the wine very naturally with high acidity and freshness and weight. And that was the only reason. And the other reason is still opportunity. Sonoma was, was getting, you know, pretty, uh, pretty jam-packed. And now it's even more. And, and uh, you know, just to be somewhere where there's opportunity to find vineyards. So that, that was the reason I... I stuck in Santa Rita Hills. But why that part of the Santa Rita Hills? Because it sounds like it's divided by soil type and area of it. Yeah, I, th- I think one day it's going to, you know, there'll be many subdivisions in the in the area. So basically the the, the northern part where some of the most fam- famous vineyards are, you know, Melville and Clopepe and, uh, you know, many others, mostly sand-based. We tried, uh, we bought grapes from uh, a vineyard called Presidio. Now it's called Duverita. And we tried and so six, seven, eight, and just couldn't get the same density and and what. And then we were lucky to, uh, you know, make wine from the southern end, uh, San Benedict, and it was just very different. You could do a whole cluster. The pH is a little bit lower. You know, it was, and you could pick earlier. And you know, so I think that of course we don't have limestone, but we have something which is the chert, like the, the silex-like soils, uh, very basic soils, and. I love acidity, so that was you could do it very easily in the southern part of San Rita Hills. So let's take a step back. In terms of reds, why wouldn't someone think that you could do whole cluster? Is it because of potassium in the stems? I mean, why would people be hesitant to do whole cluster on, on reds like Syrah or Pinot? Yeah, definitely the potassium, definitely the greenness, how the wine is made, what fermentation vessel you use. They all are, you know, they all add to you know, why whole cluster is something which people shy away from. Because it is tricky. It is very, you know, you have to be on it. You have to have the right vineyard, the right, you know, exposition, the right ripeness for sure. Because, you know, we've all had whole cluster wines. We've, I've made whole cluster wines, which are, you know, slightly green and herbaceous and not interesting. And then, you know, you, you find the perfect spot and it works. I mean, I love that style. I love whole cluster. Everything we do is pretty much all whole cluster. I love the aromas. You know, I've uh, talked to friends. I mean, the, my biggest mentor and the biggest influence in my life for whole cluster is Jeremy Sass from Domain Dujac. Uh, he's really, you know, over the years really helped me to understand, you know, how, you know, how it really works from the vineyard to to the cellar because, you know, it's 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 difficult. I think starting in 2004, I think we've, we just just scratched surface in 2012. The first vintage, I'll say, okay, now we are comfortable with fermenting with whole bunches. Dujac is known for doing whole cluster. Yeah. And when you went to Burgundy earlier in your career, you met Jacques Lees, Jeremy's dad. 
and you identified the Dujak wine and how did that all go down? Yeah, you know, I was, it was always my, that style of wine was my favorite. You know, even today, it's like, you know, I, like last night I had a 99 Dujak Kombot and it's just like, you know, it connected. It's, it's, it's my soul. I love that style of wine. I love, you know, what, what the domain Dujak has done, what Jacques and now what Jeremy and Diane and Alec are doing. It's, it's, you know, it just connects. And, and just like in the beginning when I went to Burgundy, I was just going to Somalia and just tasting and trying to understand the vineyards. I, I didn't really pay attention to, you know, how they vinify or how they, how they, you know, grow the grapes. I was just talking about just pure taste. And then slowly in the mid 2000s and then moving forward, I was like trying to relate the taste from the vineyard, but also how it was made. So it was, you know, it's very interesting to understand. Of course, you translate from the vineyard because if you, if you don't have the right resource in the vineyard, I'm not sure you can translate that in the cellar. I mean, there is an argument that that whole cluster doesn't really translate terroir or the typicity of vineyard. But I think that within an appellation or within one estate, you can totally tell the difference. Like, if, for example, if 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 you have, I'll give you an example, like Eshazo, for example, you have Domaine Dujac, Eshazo, Conti Eshazo, Rouge Eshazo, Muni Rajiborg Eshazo. Yeah, they might not have the same character in the beginning of Eshazo because they're different styles, but you know, in 10 years, 15, 20 years, the Eshazo, the, the typicity comes out. And I think, but it's, again, it's more Dujac Eshazo than Eshazo. You know what I mean? So they're, they're, I absolutely do. Yeah. I think a lot of times, because something's in a minority, it stands out. You know, because it's a minority technique, it doesn't get used as much. It stands out more when people taste than the other faucets of it. But it doesn't mean that the other faucets aren't there or won't emerge with time. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that if you taste in the cellar of one producer that you can't tell the difference. Like, it's usually pretty obvious. Yeah. This is all just, you know, we all are curious and it's going to take us one lifetime and hopefully with all the resources we have now in California. You'll get two lifetimes? Okay. Well, yeah. you know, You'll get to hope, re-up? Hopefully, so, yeah. Hopefully <laughs> like, somebody else is going like to figure it out. Like a Nintendo game? Like, two more lives. I'm yeah, no, no, it was true. I mean, the, the amount of experiments and amount of trials we do on different things just to understand and hopefully we can kind of it wasn't like I'm going to call someone in California and say, hey, you tried this, how, you know, how did it work out? Yeah, I mean, I call Jim Clendenin a lot, ask him questions. But, you know, it's, so hopefully, like, you know, when me and Sasha are like 60, 70 years old and we have a little bit of experience of figured a little bit out, hopefully somebody else is doing different things and asking us because, you know, it's all about sharing. And I, I, think, I think that's that makes California very unique right now because there are so many people in California doing just things never done before or things which were done before but never talked about. It gives me goosebumps thinking about all this amazing energy in California right now, what what learning to grow grapes, make wine, and then, you know, sharing. It's it's it is I think the you know the golden era. And not that we figure out anything right now. We are still kind of scratching the surface, but still at least we are all together kind of in it and like just excited about it. Do you think that 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 culture will sustain when vineyard parcels get harder to come by? Once wineries grow from a small size and they're demanding more fruit and people start to bump up against each other, is it going to become more competitive? Yeah, it is going to be more competitive, but it's still going to kind of, you know, I think every everyone who's enthusiastic about, about finding the right spot. And, you know, also competition is healthy. I mean, you know, it's, it's great to talk about. I mean, I, I love sharing, you know, sharing what I learned or what, you know, going like, you know, we have two awesome neighbors. We have uh, 
uh, Gavin Shannon and uh, Justin Willett from Tyler. So they are like right behind us. And so it's, it's awesome to kind of talk to them and, you know, really kind of feel like, okay, together we share vineyards and talking about just the farming or the pick date or fermentation, whatever. It's, it's, you know, it's close. And for many years, there was nobody around us and it was tough. Also, you know, like-minded people stick together. It, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. Because you're in the Lompoc wine ghetto. Yeah, in the Lompoc wine ghetto, exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's in the end of the world. There's nothing around there. Yeah, I mean, it's not something you would just casually drive by unless you were trying to get there. Right, it's, it's far away. So people, you know, we don't see that many people. So we get excited if someone shows up. You're all kind of in the same facility in a way, although you have different buildings. And you yeah, can yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's Palmina's right next to us. And, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, and it's, it's exciting to just have it around us and kind of during harvest, we all are like just sharing things and having lunch together or something. It's, it's, it's fun. But back to old world examples that you kind of drew from originally, because it feels like you got some of your ideas about the kind of protocol you wanted to do from the old world. So, when did you meet Jacques Sace and how did that go down? First time, you know, we tasted the old seven vintage in barrel and then he opened two wines, which I, I'll never forget. One is uh, two half bottles, 94 Chambon Muzini Gruenchet, which is uh, perhaps my favorite wine from the Domaine du Jack lineup. And he opened 78 Sham Sham then, which just, you know, I couldn't believe that Pinot Noir could be that ethereal. At the time, you know, I never had a 78, and it was my second visit to Burgundy, and my first visit was only to see vineyards, and second time I started going, I, I was tasting, and that wine just stuck in my mind. Like, till today, you know, Jeremy knows, the 78 vintage at Domaine de Jacques, I mean, they made a lot of great wines there, but that just resonates, that's like, that is just nectar. I regret I never met uh, Gerard Portel, because uh, those wines also are, you know, in the same vein, and uh, you know, I know his his son Nicola Potel very well, so I get an essence of you know what Gerard did. But that those wines also have the same kind of inspiration for me and Sashi. It seems like it because you know where the direction of the Burgundy project for you has gone. It seems like there's a Potel connection yeah. there. Yeah, and and you know also sharing information, like to learn, you know, because I mean, I love visiting at Domaine Romain Conti or Domaine Loire, people who use a lot of whole bunches, but getting you know the information which i can use to understand how you know how we work in in california it's it's not maybe it wasn't as easy i may connect it easier with with jeremy and and uh and jock do you feel like you've been drawn to regions that make red wine with stems in general because you've also been drawn <laughs> to the rhone right absolutely yeah for some reason it's again this on the same trip first time i went to clap cornas and, and it was like same thing you know it's like and till today, that's that was a '98. Um, I go every year. I, I don't think I've missed a visit to Domaine du Jac or to Clap since '98. Every year. So I was kind of struck by the way that you had an idea of what you wanted to make, and then found a place that could support that protocol inside California. It's all luck. <laughs> There's that. We take no credit. You know, it was just the right place and it just worked we found a lot of questions answered by by Jeremy and then of course the inspiration for all the white wines the Chardonnay we make for Jean-Marc Rouleau early on you know when I after tasting with him many years and when I said I'm going to start making some Chardonnay and he was like okay anytime you need any help let me know and then I call him usually at the beginning of harvest every year and 
uh, early on in the first vintages, he was he used to taste the wine. I used to bring samples over or meet him in New York for the Pole or San Francisco, and he used to taste the wines two or three times a year just to kind of give me feedback. And and so, of course, our vinification is very, very similar because seeing what he does. And, of course, we are in California, and so there's no comparison of what we do, but the inspiration and, again, the, the, all, the, all the questions I, I had and I have, it's uh, it's fun to kind of uh, have someone like him who can you know help you in understanding or even you know one year we went I went during harvest and we had a late harvest they had early harvest in eleven and just going sampling in the vineyard and just just looking at the cluster grapes and seeing what does it tell you you know so it's it's uh, what did you get from that you know many people say you know you taste grape and you can taste the flavor and I think that. That might be right in some instances, but it's not in, in Chardonnay. If the grape tastes good, you've missed it. It has that austere, the acid, the hardness. And that's what I learned from Jean-Marc. He's like, you know, he's tasting it. He's like walking down the rows and tasting it. It's very serious. You know, you know thinking, what is this wine going to end up being? I mean, this, this guy thinks he changes his press cycle with every different cuvee, every different ludio, every vintage. I mean, just so dialed in that you can't even think that. There's a reason why those wines taste the way they taste, because he is so dialed in. He's thinking when he's tasting that berry from Perrier of what this wine is going to be in 20 years. I mean, it's un and just like watching silently and looking at just the masterwork. Just that, starting from there, you know? Not that, oh yeah, this guy is too sweet or it's too sour or it's too crunchy, but just looking at the seed, the skin, and the flavors, it's, I'm not sure I learned anything. What I learned was how serious he was at just sampling the grapes. That's it, just tasting them. Not taking the lab and seeing what the numbers, just making a decision. Okay, I'm gonna pick Perrier. I'll pick it in three days. And then two hours later, no, I'm picking it tomorrow. How would the press cycle vary, and what does that imply? He has a unique way of vinification, of like of crushing and pressing, but he would like look at the skin or the seed, you know, and after the first press, it would maybe it's too dry or too wet, and maybe change the rotations or change the amount of the first draining or you know the, the pre-drain, you know, it's just change things like it just it's unbelievable. It's just just by looking at the grape. I mean. I've seen all his press cycles. It's like so complicated. Most people like what we do is like we have one press cycle. We have like, you know, of course, it's all pre-programmed and we'll kind of tune in. But but it's not like we'll change it for every single cube. But he will, that's why the wines are so precise. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's going to take, I mean, if, if we try that for the next 20 years in Santa Rita, it, we, we might figure out a little bit. But he's, you know, he, he's the master. He knows. And what did you take from Nicola Potel? Nico is texture. His style is different. Very long time on the skins, you know, a lot of post maceration uh, in certain vintages, and he relies on texture. He like he likes like weightless wines, you know, and uh, very much like his father. A lot of whole cluster, you know, the domain wines right now are amazing. You taste him, and he does all his like <laughs> he does all his punch downs in the dark. He doesn't let sunlight come in the cellar. At night, he put a candle and like he's done some studies on how Pinot, how like he doesn't allow any direct light, no no bulbs, no nothing in the cuvery. So he really relies on texture and long elevage and uh, yeah. One night is like he's had like three four candles there and he's like doing up. He he doesn't allow light. 
he has no lighting in the and yeah you should ask him more detail i you know i'm still trying to figure what he, what he is doing but uh, there's something he's he's doing so tell me a little bit more about sashi mormon one of the smartest guys you know i i've met i've been lucky and you know sashi's a guy you you tell him something like you taste a wine and we, you know we we taste and drink a lot of wines together and like he's curious of how it's made and you know how it's grown and and then you know he'll think about it and then he'll try to apply it in his own mind of like how all these things works and he you know he makes of course pino he makes amazing syrah for himself pirasasti and then also stolpman sellers and then he of course knows a lot about farming and he's he's complete package you know he's he planted the the Dumas de la Cote vineyards with Chris King, a vineyard manager. He knows, you know, I mean, just to go out there and say, you know what, I'm going to plant 4,000 to 7,000 vines an acre. I'm just going to do it. And let's see if it works. Because that's a lot in an acre. It, yeah, it's, I mean, 4,000 is like what Burgundy is, and then 7,000, you know, there are parts in the, you know, people in the world who've done that, but... But to say you want to do it like in a steep part of the vineyard in California where there's nothing planted before. So the, the, the vineyard, the closest vineyard was three miles away and there was nothing planted around on these hills and just to go and just to do it. And then many people gave up on the vineyard and then luckily we kind of acquired it. So, you know, he, he is, you know, he's, he's uh, on a different path. He's just, just the way he tastes, understands, and then applies it. That is what's very unique. And, and how serious, you know, the dedication to really take it from the vineyard to the bottle without any manipulation. That is like, that's, that's faith, because we live on faith, 100%. You know, we have, we have faith in, in the vineyard, hopefully faith in ourselves, and see what happens. And he actually has an experiment growing Pinot Noir, or Pinot, from seed. Yes, that's uh, again hasn't been done before. I don't know where he came with the idea. He and his wife Melissa, they basically got seeds from some old plant material, Pinot Noir, and then planted an acre in the bottom part of Memorias, one of our vineyards, the Dumas de la Cote, and and hoping that the seeds of Pinot Noir will create a unique selection of Pinot Noir, and then that will be our own selection. So just that idea, I mean, it's going to take at least 50 years. So we started in 2000 and he started in 2007. And when I, by the time I got on, got on board with the whole program, it was just like, you know, wow, it's like, and this year was the first year you saw, they were like grapes. And I was like, wow, like well, there were a lot of like red grapes. So someday we'll have our own selection of Domingo Lacote Pinot Noir. So hopefully. Because they could come out white or red. They oh yeah, they are many, they're white, they're gray, they are light red, they are, and then dark red. So we'll have to kind of tag them and then kind of DNA testing and propagate and yeah, see if, you know, people said that it won't end up become Pinot Noir, but a Pinot Noir will produce Pinot Noir. So maybe different mutations we might get lucky. We don't know. It's just, again, in a gamble. But what would be the advantage of that over, say, using a clone from a nursery? We are not into, like, clone material because a lot of it is, it's been um, treated and for either production or color or some flavor. I believe in diversity. Sashi, of course, is the reason he's done that is to create diversity. And, and hopefully we'll be able to kind of have our own plant material from 
our own vineyard, which will eventually not be a clone, be a selection. Of course, in Burgundy, they were all, all Masals, everything is old selections. Of course, there's clones also now, but we are, we are believers in, in selections. That's why the, the whole estate, our 40 acres is mostly all planted with a selection from Calera Swan, Mount Eden. So which came from Burgundy and then from there, you know, so we don't have any Dijon material on the vineyard. Which ripens differently and has a different fruit profile, the Dijon. Yeah, ab- yeah absolutely. It's, it's, uh, and we also have one vineyard, Bloomsfield, which is planted by rows, a single row of Calera Swan, Mount Eden. It's all picked together. So it's like a, a man-made masal, if you may say. And Sashi actually grows heirloom varieties of wheat for baking. That's right. On the side. Uh, he, uh, he has not enough to do, so he decided to grow wheat. Yeah, he has uh, wheat, heirloom varieties, Durham and Red Fife and different things growing. And he has an amazing oven and his partner, uh, Peter Paschen, from Washington, D.C., from restaurant Oblix. Uh, they have this bakery, which is also called Pietro Sassi, and they sell amazing bread and crackers at the farmer's market in Santa Barbara, yeah. And from the, from the door there on the weekends. In the Santa Rita Hills, you functionally have two projects. Sandy, which is micro-negos, where you're buying in fruit. And then Domaine de la Cote, where you're growing your own fruit. Yes, exactly. And Sasha makes the wine for both. Yes, you make the wines, yeah. What is the history of the Domaine de la Cote vineyard? He helped plant that. Well, how did that all get Yeah, going? so at, at the time... So Sashi was hired to be the winemaker for Evening Land, California, and they had purchased a vineyard called Occidental in Sonoma, and then Sashi was planting the vineyard for them in Santa Rita Hills in 2006 or seven. and eventually, at that time, I was working with Evening Land, making, you know, my par selection wines and together, and... Um, then eventually, after a few years, changes and whatnot, complications, they wanted to sell the vineyard. And then me and Sashi acquired it with, with some investors. And our first image was 2011. And there's different parts of it in terms of elevation and slope. Yeah, so the, the name, Domaine de la Côte, the state of slopes, is there are four distinct slopes. Uh, Memorius, which falls into uh, like a clay loam soil. And then there's Bloomsfield right above that, which is on a bedrock of pure diatomaceous and kind of this iron-rich clay, this red clay. And then we have Lakote, and that is this amphitheater vineyard, which is all shale with a very shallow topsoil, but protected, so it ripens the first. And, and then on top, around 850 feet elevation, is a Siren's Call. And it's a steep and... And that vineyard is planted, that four acres planted to uh, 7,000 vines an acre, uh, 15 inches apart. So it's, it's super dense and very low yielding, really windy. We usually, I mean, 13 is the first vintage. Then you got like two or three barrels maybe from it. So usually we don't get more than... Uh, of the siren's call. Siren's top. call, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a little... Because the others, you made 12s and you made... Yeah, yeah. Thir- 13 is the first vintage for Siren's Call. And then right above Siren's Call is an acre of, uh, and Siren's Call is also own rooted. And then the acre of Chardonnay, we call it Juliet. And uh, the goal was that Juliet is Sashi Melissa's daughter. So hopefully she'll take over the estate when we are old and gone because someone's got to take it over. So the, 
so that's going to be a, an acre of Chardonnay, which produced first vintage was 2014. And, you know, we got one barrel from one acre. So hopefully, you know, we want to kind of protect it, build a wall around it. If it kind of, it's very special. It's, uh, it's, it's totally exposed to the ocean. And, you know, it, it's uh, what we see in barrel right now. It has that, the briny, I mean, all the wines in the Coast have a kind of a briny seaweed saltiness because of the, the ocean influence. Uh, it's the last ridge before the ocean. So it's. Uh, in terms of what's in the air. Yeah, I mean it's it's fogged in most of the year, and in the growing season, in in villages like eleven and twelve, definitely more fog, less fog in thirteen, fourteen, but so the wines have this saltiness, which is which is unique to to that vineyard. The bottommost parcel you use mostly for Santa Hills Appalachian, as opposed to bottling it by itself. Absolutely, yeah. So so the Memorias in eleven and twelve has been into Santa Hills. The western part of Bloomsfield also goes Henry Hills. So the middle section is the single vineyard. And then moving forward in 13, we're going to have a bottling of Memorias, Bloomsfield, Lakoth, and Siren's Call. Oh, okay. So we'll have, for the first time, we'll have four different bottlings from the state. And then we have Henry Hills. We'll have a little Chardonnay, Henry Hills Chardonnay. And then we're going to have one small bottling from a small block we planted from cuttings from Burgundy directly from Burgundy went straight in the ground there. And that is going to be, you know, it's, since it's planted by random sticks just in the ground, it's going to be a Sanry Hills Kuve Masao, probably. That's what I mean. I think that's the name. We haven't, that's what you call it right now. <laughs> so four vineyards all planted a Pinot Noir. And how do they taste different? What way are they? Uh, what we've seen uh, so far, Memorias is the spiciest, kind of the most nervy, almost austere in a way because of the, direct ocean influence kind of the leanest of the four wines bloomsfield because of the the iron rich clay it's it's usually the most bold the most tannic the most kind of spicy and kind of more like the red fruit and kind of uh, almost like cayenne pepper kind of this wild wild fruit Uh, lakot the most suave the most silky the rose petal most aromatic also the most the softest textured wine and then Siren's Call, it's the most unique of all the four vineyards, just being beaten down with wind and the low yields, tiny, tiny, it's usually handy stemmed part of it because it's it, this huge shatter in the vineyard. So that is uh, the most delicate in a way, but also the most firm in a way. And usually that gets, a, you know, it, it it's the only wine we... We don't like using too much new wood, but that wine, for some reason, likes oak, so it gets all new barrels. We'll see. We're gonna bottle it in, in thirteen and figure it out. We, you know, we we made a little bit in twelve and in eleven, but we never bottle it separately. So thirteen is the first vintage. And something else that's changed in thirteen is that you started using the unlined cement. Uh, yes, exactly. So thirteen, finally, everything is fermented in unlined four-ton concrete fermenters made in California, made in Pasos. And those are open top? Open top, yep. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And why did you make that decision? I think that, you know, we were, when me and Sashi were traveling in uh, in Burgundy, even to Argentina, you know, just like seeing like the old way of like how, you know, the Rhone, old way how wines are made, they were made in like open top fermenters, but, you know, of course, there's a lot of wood used, but we, we, we had some wood fermenters and we saw that the, we had some of that woodiness for many years still in the in the wine. So we decided we want to, we, and we didn't want to use stainless steel and 
and concrete was an old vessel used for you know a long time and uh, we decided to kind of you know find someone who can build us concrete and trying to stay right in california it's uh, you know we try to stay as green as possible our bottles all produced in california except the cork and the barrels we try to kind of stay as local as possible but what do you think concrete adds to a wine or doesn't add to a wine? I think it doesn't add anything, and that's what it is. And also, it keeps the wine during fermentation at a constant temperature. Since we don't, we don't chill or warm anything. It's you know everything is ambient. Everything is as natural as possible. We don't add anything. We don't heat it or cool it. And it just kind of keeps the temperature from the cap and the juice, you know, stable for a long time. We don't usually do a long maceration since we don't sulfur the grapes. So usually we usually press everything usually in 14 days. So it just, you know, the draining process is easy. Digging out a tank is easy. It's let's just, it's a lot of convenience. Plus just it works for the style of wine we make. But why unlined? In the beginning, we, we had a lining, but, you know, we didn't need it. You know, there was, there was no need to line it. I think, you know, cleaning it is you know, also very easy. Cold water, you know. I don't know. We we didn't have a line one in the beginning. I think after Asashi, why we why we why we didn't we didn't like it for some reason. I think it cracked or something. Something happened with the with the first the first one we had. And would open top help you with reduction? Is that why it's open top? Yeah, traditionally Pinot Noir all all made an open top. Uh, you know, because usually we do uh, mostly pumping over and by all by hand. So pigeage and punch down all by hand. Uh, yeah, we don't we don't see much reduction in the wine uh, naturally because we don't add any sulfur. Uh, it's only what it was in the vineyard. So if we have reduction, we do a delastage and bucket over, and that's pretty much it. So because sometimes people are like, oh, when you do more biodynamics, you get more reduction. How, how are you guys working with the farming? I guess that is correct. If there's disease pressure in the vineyard and you have to sulfur it, like in Burgundy, but since we are in an area which is the only disease pressure, we kind of C is botrytis, so we don't we don't use excessive uh, sulfur in the vineyard or or any copper or anything. Of course, if we were in a place, place like Burgundy and like in, in even Oregon where there's a lot of rain, there's more more disease pressure. So then that sulfur can translate into uh, the fermentation then reduction. But we don't have that issue, and then we don't sulfur anything in the tank. So it just we don't see that with Pinot Noir, I guess. Sashi does see that with Syrah because uh, it's Syrah's much more, like that. Yeah, it, it, it loves reduction. But you do put sulfur bottling. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we usually sulfur it. If you rack it, we'll sulfur it. And the bottling, of course, there's enough sulfur, maybe like 25 ppm free sulfur. So, what is your thinking in terms of not using it before then? I think that we have a natural flora, natural yeast in the vineyard. We've done some yeast analysis and Usually through mid-ferment, we are above 50% non-Saccharomyces yeast, which is amazing to see, you know, to see something which is so unique to our own vineyard, a yeast strain which uh, even the lab won't recognize, and it's non-Saccharomyces, which is, which is pretty, pretty cool. Uh, well, I've never really heard that before. Usually people talk about the Saccharomyces, so yeast is the being the... Yeah, we, we, we knew that if we had non-Saccharomyces yeast, we didn't know how much. And then when we did the analysis this year, through mid-ferment, it was above 50% non-Saccharomyces yeast, so which is super unique. And if you sulfured it in the beginning, you would probably kill all those, and then you'll be left with only Saccharomyces. Nothing wrong with that, but it's just 
maybe that adds a uniqueness of the vineyard. Would you say that that uniqueness comes through more aromatically or more in a? I think aromatically, because when you when you smell, because we buy in Saudi, we buy the grapes from different vineyards, and we have Romain de la Côte, and Romain de la Côte wines always are uniquely different than the other vineyards, and it, of course it could be typicity, it could be many different things, but we believe it is a lot to do with the fermentation and the aromatics. What is the degree of whole cluster for the different vineyards? Does it change? Uh, usually. All single vineyard wines for Sandy and Domain de la Côte are 100% whole bunches. Oh, okay. Yeah, we only usually destem the uh, San Rey Hills, the entry-level wine, uh, the Appalachian wine, and everything else is all whole bunches. Because a lot of times in Burgundy, people who went 100% have drawn back, and Dujac has drawn back, you know, varies with year to year, and DRC as well varies mm -hmm. year to year. Would you think that you need 100% in California to basically counter the abundance of fruit? Like give you yeah, more uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think that was the initial thought we had was like, we have so much sunlight, we have a lot of fruit flavor, so the whole cluster would, would kind of counter, uh, you know, counterbalance the fruitiness. But I think that at Domaine de la Côte, if you see the clusters we have, they're very very small, and if you destem it, you're gonna crush it up anyway. So, and we don't have the same kind of mirandage you have in Burgundy or in other places. Tiny, tiny, tiny clusters. And uh whole cluster just works much better. Because when I, you know, cruise into Latash now and again and or some of the other vineyards in that area, I've noticed that the berries are a lot smaller than what I would associate with berries in a lot of parts of California. Right. Yeah. And I think I think I was talking to uh, a producer from Champagne and he was like saying it's probably because the set is so poor, because we have so much wind early on and uh because of the of the, of the set we have small clusters. Uh, because of being on the windy part of uh, Santa Rita. I mean, all of Santa Rita is windy, but just being exposed to the ocean. Is the winemaking for Sandy different? I mean, you said that for the single vineyards, you use whole cluster, but is there something different about the wine for Sandy in terms of the winemaking when you buy in the fruit versus what you do for the owned fruit for Domendelico? Yeah. S same yeah. winemaker, but... Yeah. yeah, yeah, we make the wines all together, and I think the vinification is slightly different. The inspiration of Sandy from the beginning always came with more whole bunch, but more with pumping over, more with uh, infusion and uh, very gentle extraction. We don't punch down at all. We don't do any pijas. Just a little pump over and then press sits in a 500 liter punch-in, and then only sulfur bottling. So in the inspiration is definitely more, in, for Pinot, is more like Beaujolais, like Foyard, Lapierre, Pacolet, and Burgundy, that kind of, just more kind of finesse, more kind of fruit, more kind of, you know, lifted flavors, uh, but a more delicious, like a glug glug wine, you know, just. A little broader shoulders yeah. for, the, for the reds. Yeah, so that's the, the for the well, Chardonnay is very traditional. And Domaine de la Côte is, is, you know, we do more punch downs and longer aging in, in Barrique. The wines, we need, to, we need to extract more from those, from the wines, because they are much more finesse driven. I guess the, the vineyards give us much more finesse and naturally. So we want to get a little more because it does sit in barrel for longer. It's more traditional. It gets racked usually twice before it gets bottled. You know, it's it's more traditional Burgundian mentality, I think. Because there have been instances where you made fruit from Lakote under Sandy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do we do a small, uh, Sandy has uh, historically, the first Pinot Sandy made was from that vineyard. So we continue to give a, have a small block for Sandy and the wine is made in the in the more the Sandy style, so more kind of just pump over and 
I think the other day we tested the Sandhi Lakot and Domain Lakot Lakot, and even though they ha- it had the Lakot identity, the texture was totally different of a wine which never had a single punch down. And then at, at Domain Lakot, it was you know it was made traditionally with in concrete versus Sandhi's made in Terenso two and three ton fermenters, wood fermenters. With Sandhi, you have a full scale Chardonnay project that's been released, several different releases of Chardonnay, whereas with the Mandela Coat, you have, as you mentioned, a bit of Chardonnay coming in the future. Yes. So what's it been like working with Chardonnay in your experience under the Sandy label? Sandy, the focus is Chardonnay. That's you know, mostly it's 70% Chardonnay. A little bit of Pinot uh, we make, uh, and the Mandela Coat is mostly all Pinot, a little bit of Chardonnay we make. And I think, you know, working with Vineyards like Sanford Benedict, it's been just amazing. I've been working with the vineyards since 2004, and just to see the progression of you know of, of these old California plants, like they're like six feet tall. You know, it's like because they're planted in the 70s. They planted 71, yeah. And then working with Bent Rock, which is planted in 07, and then planting Chardonnay at Dome de la Cote, which is planted much denser and a different way. It's it's just, you know, and we're gonna we're gonna go on and plant another twenty acres of Chardonnay at this state, hopefully next year. A little uh, lower down or yeah, below memorias. So more loamy soil, more the of the wash from the Bloomsfield. And that is gonna be interesting because you're gonna have like a different exposition, totally exposed to the ocean. Yeah, it's it's, it's gonna be interesting. Now it's interesting that bent rocks from such young vines because when I taste that Chardonnay from you I feel like there's a lot of density, and a lot of times I would associate my mind with old vines. Yeah, no, absolutely. I but the first time we, you know, we discovered the vineyard was on the north-facing slope, and and uh, you know it's really windy and really low yield, and I think that maybe again I, I don't know the answer. Maybe the vines uh, struggle so much to grow that they maybe <laughs> mature faster. I don't know. Of course. San Benedict should be a better wine every year, and it is a very unique and different wine than Bentrock, but Bentrock has a different density, and we have, we have more questions and less answers. So maybe in 20 years, when we talk about this again, we can probably say we might have figured a few things out. But it seems like Sanford and Benedict, at least through the lens of Sandy, has a more open-knit texture and maybe a little bit more of a nutty fruit character. Absolutely. It has that kind of that raw nut. It has also a seaweed-like quality it's uh you know it's it's uh, own rooted facing north california's for all it's it's you know it's uh, every time we walk by the vineyard we're like wow this is like you know it's just an honor to be associated with the vineyard and and you know to have richard sanford michael benedict still around there and like ask them questions about you know it's it's just magical so what about the farming you have a partnership with a, a, a vineyard management firm a few, yeah. Sandy, we work with a few different, uh, and uh, you know, we kind of we don't do the farming for Sandy, but we we dictate the farming. But at Dome de la Cote, we have our own team and do the farming ourselves, and that is all organic. and And that vineyard has had nothing, you know, no chemicals in it ever. It was just a hill for grazing for uh, for cattle. So, and what about irrigation? Irrigation is uh, something which uh, we pay a lot of attention to, and we are trying to figure it out because, of course, eventually at our own estate, we want to be dry farmed. And since we have young vines right now, you got to take care of it. So we do irrigate uh, mostly in the winter months and very little during 
during the growing season, just enough for the plant to grow and then nothing after variation. So hopefully the vines will regulate and one day we we can be dry farmed. Irrigation is a big issue in California. There's a lot of over-irrigation and it ends up in dilute and just, you know, boring wine and boring grapes. So we try our best to, you know, do the best we can. You know, again, the grower's job is to grow grapes and, you know, get up to what the yields are and our job is to make the wine. So it is important to, if you have your own vineyard or if you have someone who's totally dialed in and listening to you because, you know, 99% of the, all the wines in the world made are made in the vineyard. It's it's a fact. And that's the, the reason is things like pruning and, and irrigation is an issue for us in California. So we got to, you know, get better at it. What about cooperage? Since we always historically use very little new oak, except for 09, we had, we had to buy some new barrels and we try to not overthink it. So, but, but I do believe that one cooper per estate is important. Like for Sandy, we've always used Francois Frere punchins in for Chardonnay and Terence punchins for Pinot Noir. And then we're going to switch it after 14. We're going to uh, go to uh, Hermitage for Pinot and then and then most likely Stockinger for Chardonnay. It, I think it works really well. And then and the Quote is all uh, Hermitage break. We don't, we, you know, up, up, New York percentage is usually like 5%, 10%, maybe 20% at most. We just want a vessel to age the wine and hopefully when we have lots of punchins, you know, it'll, it'll uh, we'll have a good stable so we don't have to buy too many new ones. Because sometimes Hermitage barrels, to me, give a bit of a, a softer, more kind of noble taste, mm-hmm. whereas Taranso gives a, a little bit more of a cut to it, a little bit more distinctive to the taste. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I love Taranso, it's great, but just to kind of, we have good relationships with Hermitage and, you know, Sashi likes a specific forest and they kind of, you know, they kind of work with him, and uh, yeah, it's good. I know that, you know, you know, again, they all are good. I mean, Francois Frere is good. It's different. It's got a more toasty flavor, and and I think Stockinger is is definitely uh, stepping up his game. And they're like, you know, of course they have uh, the Fudras, and but they are also making barrels and bricks, and it's exciting. They give the least amount of woody flavor. I mean, if someone doesn't want a lot of woody flavor in the wine, then Stockinger is not the one to have. But yeah, so I get a lot of like white flowers and chamomile with stocking yeah. here sometimes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's different forest sources. Yeah, you probably tasted a lot. Uh, Italy, there's a lot of stocking. There's a lot. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I've tasted a little bit in Chablis, in Champagne, and just one in Burgundy. So it's. Uh, You've also been doing some other experiments at Sandy and Manila Code, including using a screw press. How did that mm-hmm. get going? Huh. It's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, you know, I was, you know, again, just curious to see how wine was made back in the day, you know, it's, uh, you know, trying to do it as, you know, see what people did, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago before the pneumatic presses. So we bought a screw press from um, uh, my fiance's uncle, who was selling it. And it was just, and, you know, it's a total manual, it takes a lot of time, and it's very noisy. And, you know, it just goes up to five bars, you know. So, you know, normal pneumatic is up to two bars. So we're just seeing for for Chardonnay how much dry extract we can get and how much density. And we we did the same trial with uh, the Europress and the screw press 
and uh, we separately right now. And the, in the juice form, the screw press was more aromatic. And uh, after fermentation, we tasted it the other day, and the Euro press had a little more reduction. The screw press was a little more kind of pure. Yeah, we'll see it after a year. Of Usually, we take it to a tank after eleven months, so we'll. It'll be interesting to see how before we rack it for the first time and uh, to see how it tastes. But it's again just a trial. Curious. Because some people have theorized that there's a connection between more gentle pressing and premature oxidation. Yeah, gentle pressing and not taking enough solids, those could. They are, you know, people have said many things. I don't know what the answer is, but, you know, we believe in oxidizing the juice. We believe in, in, in getting maximal solids and, and getting brown juice, which will ferment into white wine. So, You also have an intern working in the harvest who was working with Evening Land in Oregon, but then came down to Santa Barbara and Lompoc and has his own kind of different protocol for some of the same grapes that you... Yeah, happened. yeah. Thomas works with us in, in Seven Springs in, in Oregon, and he worked harvest. In the first part of the harvest, he worked with us at, at the Lakota, and he's, he went to school in Burgundy, and then he worked at in the vineyards with Domaine du Jacques and with Potel and, and also Domaine de Conti. So, so we gave him a tank to kind of play with and he did some, uh, you know, he like flambéed the tank, like burnt like vodka basically in a wood tank. And it was just different protocol of what, what we do and the kind of his inspiration was wines. He's, you know, he's been turned in, in Burgundy. So... So that we, we kept that fermentation separate, even though it's from I think it was Bloomsfield, yeah, and uh, it's aging separately to see you know see what happens. <laughs> it's just you know another trial, another one of our uh, you know trials to see. And you got some trousseau in this year. Oh yeah, <laughs> again uh, for fun, you know it was uh, there's no trousseau in in Santa Barbara, so we got some cuttings from Arnold Roberts from the Lucinger Vineyard and grafted them on Sangiovese at at Stolpman in Ballard Canyon and uh, one acre and this year we made a little trousseau whole cluster and concrete and then we uh yeah so it's aging also in a in a closed concrete tank now and we also made a little trousseau noir pet nut so whole cluster pressed and uh, natural sparkling it's gonna be bottled in a crown cap probably in the spring or summer just a fun little i don't know just just to see what happens how's it looking so far Tastes delicious, yeah. Yeah, the, the Trousseau Noir tastes very pale, super aromatic and really fruity, and just how Trousseau is, simple, coughable wine, and the Pet Nut is delicious, yeah. I can't wait to, uh, you know, get it out there. And you also have a fun project with the Arnott Roberts guys for the last few years, doing a little gamay. Oh, yeah, those guys, are, you know, they are huge inspirations in my, in my life, and Dear, dear friends, and what they do is just amazing. What they do uh, with with different grape varieties, and in uh, in you know Santa Cruz and the North Coast. So we were in in the Rhone together, like what about 2010 or around there, and and we were just like just you know we we're tasting Syrah, but we were like always talking about Gamay restaurants. We go, you always like drinking Beaujolais, and we we're like, oh, I wonder if there's any Gamay in California. And we decided to like hunt out some vineyards, and with the help of uh, Steve Edmonds, we found some two vineyards in in the Sierra foothills and uh, on on pink granite. I mean, really like crazy pink granite. So we started a small label, RPM, Roberts, Power, Myers, all our last names, and. Uh, 
we make a little bit of gamay there. So the, the wine is made in um, made in uh, in Hillsburg at Arnold Roberts, and uh, hopefully, eventually, we'll do something else, another little gamay somewhere else. So you know, it's a very small project. It's a huge learning experience, and basically, to make gamay so we can uh, drink some ourselves, and hopefully, you know, again, another one of these wild California trials, which kind of works for us and it's a fun collaboration and makes me go see them uh, often and yeah it's great but it seems like some of the technique in terms of making the wine has changed a bit for that yeah so in 11 12 13 we were still kind of you know we had very small very small lots different picks from from both the vineyards and then when the, finally the vineyard the new vineyard planted came online so now we have like a, a decent quantity we can ferment separately and you know you know fermenting one ton is very hard. I mean, in fermenting two or three tons, it's like, you know, so we did full. And the reason it's hard is because the fermentation doesn't get started. It doesn't get started in the vessel, and it's just, you know, the extraction is not the right extraction. So finally in 14, we had, you know, a uh, decent quantity of ferment separately, and we did 100% carbonic, pressed early, very classic Beaujolais style. And the wines are delicious. It's totally like a different. Finally, we kind of like after. Four years, we are in a different path. So this is it takes a while to to figure it out. And you recently announced that you were going to be involved with the Evening Land in Oregon, and you were yeah. doing harvest there for the first time this year. Yeah, that, what was the, that like? Yeah, we took over the Seven Springs Vineyard, a historic vineyard planted in the eighties, Gamay, uh, Pinot Noir, and some Chardonnay planted from 1995. And super excited, you know. It's 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 the vintage uh, this year was unbelievable. And it's it works because after I finish the harvest in Santa Rita, go to Oregon and spend a month there, and we have a great team uh, working with us. And it's you know it, just to work with the historic vineyard, uh, it's biodynamic vineyard. Dominic Lafon is, is is our consultant. He's a good friend, so it's kind of awesome to kind of work with him and and learn about the vineyard and and couldn't be happier with with this vintage there. What was that like? This vintage. It's it was early, very very short growing season, but the wines are super aromatic. It's the first time we used a lot of whole cluster there. You know, we made the wines in the same way. There was you know we didn't use any sulfur or any additives. It's, everything was made ambient. You know, lots of pump overs. So you know, just keeping the wine in the same kind of. It's a sister property to Domaine de la Cote, so it's it's of course has to be made in a in a similar way. And that's what he did. Of course, it's Oregon. It's different. The grapes are different. The numbers are different. The aromatics are different. But the inspiration is the same. The stylistically, it's, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, a similar wine to the Manila Coat. So we'll see. We'll see how the Elavage is. And after Malo's done, we'll, yeah, it's again another, another learning experience. Did it surprise you the heat? I mean, it sounds like it, it was. Hot. It was really warm. Yeah, I was. I was. I was surprised because. Uh, just usually when we, you know, we we record every year, you know, starting off, uh, you know, bud break and flowering, middle flowering. And then, you know, I'm expecting, yeah, so we're going to start picking like September 16, 17. That's like around 95 days from middle flowering. And, you know, we looked at the numbers and I got there on, I think, the 5th or 6th September. And we're like, wow, we got to pick it tomorrow. So we picked it really early and... We picked everything within like I think eleven days, uh, and then looking at the numbers from mid flowering to picking, they were all like eighty five days, ninety days. So it was very, it was extreme heat. I mean, you know, we don't get 
100 degree weather in Sanray Hills during harvest. You, know, you might get 90s, but not 100. You know, it, was, it was very warm. But, uh, you know, old vines and they were very stable. The young vines were very, you know, they were pushing. And so you had to kind of pick them and keep the acidity. And that's, that's key. That's the style of Seven Springs that has been since uh, Evening Labs made it. And we kept the same kind of idea. And that's my style personally also. So it worked well. And what did Dominique Lafon tell you? Uh, he said, don't mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, uh, no, I mean, we're just, you know, he's really amazing with the vineyard and he took the vineyard from uh, where it started to biodynamic and, you know, the, the vine health is amazing. The canopy is great. He really, you know, helped me understand the vineyard and, uh, you know, it was fun to make all these different blocks planted to different clone material, different, uh, some, no rootstock, some are half a loxra. So it's, you know, it was Amazing to see all these different aspects and, and different parts of vineyards, all just totally different, but we were making it almost exactly the same way. So it was, they were all were treated the same way. So it was pretty interesting to, uh, you know, to see the whole process. You have a project in Burgundy these days, the Maison Loire. Yeah, we, it was a, it's a small, small negos, which we started in 2009 tiny you know we we work uh, we share we shared the space with Nico Portel since then and now we've taken over the the old evening land the Chateau Brigny space so the wines are going to be made there from next vintage and the elevage is going to be there so very small you know around a total of a thousand cases of different appellations which i love and and we have Matt Chidik, who's our you know he works with Nico and he takes care of the wines he makes the wines for Maison Loire and uh, in Bone, yeah. But you have Cote de Bone and Cote de Nuit there. You make in Chambon, was Yeah, yeah, exactly. We have some some Merceau, Merceau Charme, Chambol, Mon Village, Gevry Village, Gevry Champeau. So, you know, just uh, some appellations I love and in small quantities and, you know. What's it like to be a micro-negos in Burgundy today? Uh, it's challenging. <laughs> it seemed easy in the beginning, but then, you know, everyone wants the grapes, everyone wants the juice and... It's expensive, and hopefully, you know, we can make it and and make a make a business out of it, which we won't have to, uh, you know, lose our pants on. So, but it's 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 expensive. It's it's and it's tough. You know, it's not easy to find the right right vineyards to work with and the right growers. But you know, it's uh, it's another another experience, another challenge. So, when you buy grapes. How do they arrive? They arrive in a truck, or uh, usually, usually, we are in nine, ten. All the way, we bought mostly juice. In some instances, grapes, and you know, Nico's team, they they pick it and then they'll bring it back, uh, bring it back to the cellar, and it's it's made in Savigny Le Bon where his where the Nico's is, his own Nico's is. So, but moving forward, it's gonna you know, be made at. Uh, Chateau de Brigny, where there's, you know, the whole winery is set up. It's, it's got tags and everything there. So it's going to be made there. And what's next for Raj Par? It seems like uh, you... This is it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing else. This is, uh, you know, just to take care of Dumont de la Côte, Seven Springs, or, you know, our estates there, and then to fine-tuning and learning more. And, yeah, this is, this is pretty much it. What have been some of the most important realizations for you? Believe in yourself and have faith, you know. That's what me and Sashi always, you know, because it's always been like people have always doubted 
us and they will continue probably. And You're talking about me. Oh, <laughs> no, not you. You know, you know it's, it's fine. You know, it's like all my life I came from, from India. You know, I came, I wasn't, there was no, uh, nothing taken for granted. It's not like you, someone gives you something and, oh, this is mine. I deserve this. No, we deserve nothing. But we realized that, you know, we, we are doing a few things and we are relying all on faith and the doubters can doubt. So we just continue doing our own thing. The doubts have tended to center on the issue of alcohol, which hasn't even come up during this interview. What would you say about alcohol levels for? Oh, I, you know, again, we make the wines, we grow the grapes of what we like drinking ourselves. So it doesn't matter. You know, I have nothing against uh, anything. I love Chateau de Pop. Yeah. I mean, I don't drink a lot of it. You know, I'll, it's all over 14, 15%. I love Barolo. Everything is over 14%. It doesn't matter. You know, I think the, the topic is taken out of context of, of alcohol. Of course, for purity of fruit, for Pinot, Chardonnay, I, you know, I like, I like more delicate wines, you know. I mean, yeah, I love Freddie Mounier. Do I love his own wines? Yeah, yeah, it's not my style. It's a, it's a just style. I like Freddie Mounier. Yeah, and I'm sure the own wines, which are much bigger, will, you know, soften up in 10, 15, 20 years. And, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean that, I'm against him or his, like one vintage of, you know, somebody made, you know, we made a wine in 2011, Redux Grand Chardonnay, it was 13.9 degrees of alcohol. I didn't measure it and say, oh, it has to be under 14. The pH was 3.1. The acidity picture was nine, nine grams of TA. So it doesn't equate always that you have to be at this alcohol or that alcohol. Yeah, you know, it's, it's exaggerated. I, I made a, a rule in, at RS74 in 2009 and it was just, it was, it was what it was, you know, it was, it was just a, something we did at the, at the time and it exaggerated into something else. And then, you know, the press makes a different story out of it. So it's, it wasn't sticking it's our context. The press has its own cycle. Was that, yeah, exactly. Okay. That too. <laughs> but it seems like you don't even pick on bricks when you no, pick. No, no. So. Once it gets to 20 or 21, we kind of stop checking it. We just like. Acidity, mostly acidity. Yeah. Back to those those tastes and those grapes again. Walking the rose rose. Exactly, a hundred percent on taste. Yeah, and then well, we do make mistakes sometimes. We oh, it tastes great. Let's pick it. Okay, hang on. Let's just check the bricks just for in case. Oh, it's only nineteen point two. Okay, let's just wait. You know, we're not afraid of making a twelve percent alcohol wine. Not afraid of making a fourteen percent alcohol wine. You know, we we've, we've done trials and picked. In a little bit much later, and we've you know ended up making a wine of fourteen and a half. We have we had a wine in two thousand and twelve at fourteen point nine. Of course, they went into the Center Hills blend, but it was a trial. We wanted to see how the you know we kept the wine in a barrel all the way till uh, you know till the end until we blended in into uh, the Center Hills. So we we keep trying. It's not. I think we get ripeness at lower sugars, but that's just us, you know, and so. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, Santa Rita Hills, a little bit of Trousseau. Gamay in Healdsburg, at least that's where it's made. Oregon Seven Springs, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. You got the project in Burgundy. I know you're a big lover of Syrah, so where are you hiding the Syrah winery? <laughs> and, and where's the Riesling winery? You got something it's, in the Rheingau you don't want to no, tell me no, about? No, 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 no. We have... You know, I'm Syrah by Syrah and Tolpman and, and Sashi's own wine. So, yeah, we do a little Syrah. We just, you know, we haven't released it yet. It's 2012. It's still still in bottle. We do a carbonic Syrah. 
it'll come out at some point. Just a little bit. One fermenter for fun, you know. Just a little homage, inspiration from Thierry Allemand, you know. A little Sans Souf Seras. So that's it. It's a fun project. Nothing, nothing serious, nothing big, commercial, like one fermenter. Raj Parr, he's been inspired by mentors in the old world, and he's having fun in a new world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Raj Parr of several different winery projects, including <laughs> RPM, Maison Loray, Sandy, Domaine de la Cote, and the Eveningland Seven Springs project in Oregon. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.